Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. If you uh, came here this morning expecting a Mother's Day sermon, I apologize in advance. We are working our way through the gospel according to Luke, and we are in a section of Luke that is not real conducive to a Mother's Day sermon. Focus is upon the coming judgment of God and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And ironically, I suppose, I don't know if that's the right use of the word, this morning we're going to talk about division in family instead of talking about Mother's Day. Luke chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading in verse 49, and I'll read through verse 59. Hear the word of God. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The right side of history. That was one of the favorite phrases of two of our more recent presidents. President Bill Clinton, President Barack Obama. Someone figured out that President Clinton used the phrase, the right side of history, or the opposite of that phrase, the wrong side of history, over 25 times during his speeches and debates. And President Obama used those phrases almost 30 times during his speeches and debates. They used them so often and it's become part of our pop culture. Are you on the right side of history? The idea behind it is that history is progressing towards something better, something good, something right, and you had better be able to interpret from the trajectory of history where history is going and get on the right side of that history. Don't you dare be caught on the wrong side of where history is going. Well, that little phrase reflects a certain amount of hubris, doesn't it? The idea that we can accurately look at the last 10, 50, 100, 1,000 years and and figure out the trajectory of the moral issues 
and where they're headed in the future so that we can figure out where to be on the right side of all these moral issues. A political commentator for Atlantic Magazine named David Graham, he wrote this, he said, the problem with this kind of thinking is that it imputes an agency to history that doesn't exist. Worse, it assumes that progress is unidirectional, but history is not a moral force in and of itself, and it has no set course. Now, it's interesting to think that we would be so prideful to think that we can figure out where history is going based on our track record. Just let me give you one example. 30 years ago, when the uh, Soviet Union was breaking apart, communist nations were, uh, were all uh, in great difficulty, extreme having some extreme problems, and the Berlin Wall was falling, and everybody, everybody was saying, look, socialism, communism, those movements, those philosophies, the, it's dead. Matter of fact, it's been disproven, it's discredited. And yet 30 years later, in the minds of many of our leaders and throughout much of our culture, socialism is seen as progressive. That's the term that's applied for it, progressive. In other words, it's on the right side of history and so you need to get on the right side of history. As I think about what Mr. Graham said, that history does not have a agency behind it. History itself does not uh, move anywhere. History is not any kind of entity in and of itself. It he says it does not have a moral force and it has no set course. I agree with him that history is not, what's driving his, is not what's driving events and what's determining the future, but I disagree with him that history does not have a moral force behind it. And I also disagree that it has no set course. The moral force driving history, as you look back upon it, if you look with any kind of open eyes, you see that it's driven by human depravity. Sin is the one consistent that you can see throughout history that's been driving events in this fallen world. And I totally disagree that history has no set course. It has a clear course that is set by God. There is a plan behind history. There is an agenda. There is a schedule of events. The Apostle Paul says that God quote, works all things according to the counsel of his will, according to Ephesians 1. And in, in Romans 8, he says he, that God works everything together for good for those whom he loves. And in Romans chapter 2, it says that the wicked are storing up for themselves wrath the, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, there is, history is linear, it's headed in a certain direction, and there is an end to history that everything is driving towards. Martin Luther King said, Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And he's absolutely right. But there's a great disagreement about what that justice looks like. What is that justice that all of history is headed towards? Because it's very important. If you want to be on the right side of history, you better know what that justice looks like that we're headed towards. 
You see, this is really the basic idea between, behind what we've been seeing here in Luke chapter 12. Jesus has been teaching his disciples to live with a view to the future. He says, don't live for this present world. Don't live for its treasures. Don't live for its values. Don't live for its goals. Because he is coming again. And when he comes, he's going to bring divine justice, ultimate justice, true justice when he returns. And the only way to understand the past and the present and the future leading up to that great moment is to understand it in light of what God is doing in the world. Yes, the one moral force driving history is human sin, but the one plan behind all of human history is the, what we call the covenant of grace the plan that God put in place to redeem us from our sin, to provide a way of atonement, a way of salvation through his son. And so we look at the past and we see what God has done to make that possible through the first coming of Christ, what Christ has already accomplished at the cross. And we look at the present and we understand that at the present, the message of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth is what's driving the agenda of the present, our current circumstances. And the future is what Christ will accomplish when he returns. And he puts away all that is evil and broken once for all. Last week, we saw that Jesus told two parables where he told us to basically see ourselves as servants in a master's household who are serving faithfully and watchfully and selflessly as we wait for the master to return. You see what I'm saying? You understand the history according to scripture, the present according to scripture, and the future according to scripture. That's how you ought to live. As faithful servants watching for your master's return. We know where history is headed. We know what is required of us to live accordingly. We know what it means to be on the right side of history from God's perspective. So here in verses, I want to jump ahead to the middle of the passage I read just a moment ago, verses 54 through 56, because interestingly, Jesus rebukes his listeners here, and most of them, maybe all of them at this point, are Jewish. So they have been taught the Old Testament scriptures. They've been raised in that understanding of history and what God is doing in the world. And he says, you know, you are, he looks at how they're living their lives. He says, you're able to study past events in regard to the weather and current circumstances regarding the weather and you're able to predict what's going to happen in the future regarding the weather. He says, you know, if you see dark clouds coming up in the west, you know it's going to rain. Why did they know that? Well, it's because the Mediterranean Sea was to the west of Judea. So if they saw dark clouds coming from the west, they knew that those clouds were bringing rain from the Mediterranean Sea so they could predictably, you know, look for rain to come. He says, if you feel the winds coming from the south, you know that Brutally hot weather is coming. How did they know that? Because the deserts were to the south. The deserts of Egypt and Arabia would bring that hot air with the winds coming north. You know, it's like we have the old saying, it's, we, I, think, I guess it started with 
sailors, because that's what it talks about. It says, you know, red sky, at, uh, how's it go? Wait a minute, better check my notes. I don't want to misquote it. I should know this. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. So that's what they were doing. That's what the Jews were doing. Normal, you know, talk about the weather, predict the weather. He says, you know how to do that based on observing the past and observing the present and predicting the future, but you're totally blind to what God has done in the past, what God is doing in the present, and what God is going to do in the future. You're good at predicting the future in terms of trivial matters related to your comfort and your convenience, but you don't know how to understand what God is doing and where he is going with history. It's like people who are very good at predicting trends in the stock market and yet are blind to what God is doing in the world all around them. Jesus says, you don't know how to interpret the present time. It's an interesting phrase. It's actually one word, kairos in the Greek. And that word means critical time, a, a hugely significant moment in history. He says, you're missing what God is doing in the present, and it is of cosmic significance. It's a life-changing moment for not just for us as individuals, but for the whole universe. Because the Messiah has come, and his kingdom is being established. And so Jesus, in light of this, teaches here in these verses we read a moment ago, a true view of history so that we can have a true view of the future how to be on the right side of history. Having just told these parables about how we are to see ourselves as servants serving faithfully until the master returns, Jesus then really opens up his heart here, shares with his disciples this heavy, unbelievably heavy burden that he has been carrying from the beginning, but is getting more and more intense with every step that he gets closer to Jerusalem. He says, judgment is coming. Verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Jesus came in order to bring fire upon the earth. Now again, we've just been talking about the master's return and we've been applying all of it to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so that would be the natural and I think correct assumption initially what Jesus is talking about here, that he will come and bring final judgment upon the earth. Matter of fact, his Jewish listeners who are trained in the Old Testament scriptures, that's what they would understand because the metaphor of fire is one of the most common metaphors in scripture. And fire almost always refers to the wrath of God, the outpouring of God's wrath against sin and sinners. That's what fire represents in Scripture over and over again. And Jesus used that imagery. Jesus used that metaphor often. Get, let me give you a few examples. Matthew 13, verse 40. He says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all that causes sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, Speaking about judgment day, that final day, he says that on that day he will say to those who have rejected him, who do not believe, he will say to them, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
And over and over again, he described hell as a place where, quote, their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. But then Jesus, you know, so that would be what everybody thought he was talking about, is some great judgment to come. But then he gives a twist in verse 50 and catches us off guard. He says it isn't that final judgment that he's talking about, but a much more imminent judgment. He is distressed about this coming judgment. He's distressed because he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see, he's not focused upon the judgment that he will inflict upon the wicked when he comes again. He's talking about the judgment, the wrath of God upon sin that he will endure when he goes to the cross very, very soon. That is the baptism that he had to be baptized with. If Christ had not borne the wrath of God against our sins on the cross, then when he comes at the second coming, all of us would come under that wrath and judgment and be punished forever. It's interesting, back in chapter 9, we saw that Jesus, quote, set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's how Luke described it. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to fulfill his destiny, his mission from the Father. And that mission was to bear the wrath of God for our sins. His distress, as he describes it, over that coming judgment that he would endure, hits a crescendo when he, the night before he went to the cross, went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed to the Father, may this cup be taken away from me, but not my will be done, but your will be done. And it says that he sweat like great drops of blood in his distress, knowing that he was to face an eternity's worth of God's wrath against our sins in just a matter of hours. He was about to be crushed by what we deserve. Of course, that is the gospel message. That's why we're still here today. He didn't save us just to take us to heaven and make us perfect. That is his long-term goal, but the immediate goal, the immediate agenda is for us to take that message to a world that is lost without it. The gospel message goes like this, according to John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He did not come into the world to cast fire upon the world the first time, but that his people might be saved through his death on the cross. That's why Hebrews chapter 12 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. You and I cannot imagine the horrors that he experienced bearing the Father's wrath upon our sin on the cross. But Hebrews 12 tells us that he did so joyfully because of the joy, it was because of what was set before him. It was for the purpose of saving us whom he loved. And so this present time that Jesus talked about, this, this critical time that so many of his contemporaries missed, that they were blind to, that they didn't understand, 
is, was the turning point of history. Because history has been one long record of rebellion and sin, disobedience and rejection of our creator. But when Jesus went to the cross, everything changed for those who believe, for those who trust him. That set the trajectory for the future. The second thing that Jesus teaches here is that this gospel message, this wonderful gospel message will be divisive. We don't want to accept that, but the reality is that this gospel message is divisive. Jesus says something in verse 51 that would shock his followers. He says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. This goes contrary to everything that the Jewish people expected in the first century. They misunderstood what the Old Testament was saying about the coming of the Messiah. They expected the Messiah to come and, and set up his earthly kingdom, take a throne in Jerusalem, gather the Jews from all the nations, create this great Jewish nation that would live in peace and prosperity and power over all other nations. That's what they expected the Messiah to do. And so they thought for, for the Jews that when the Messiah came, he would bring peace. And there are prophecies in the Old Testament that can be understood that way if you have the wrong assumptions. And so Jesus is playing on that. And he says, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring division. Now, let me be clear. He is the Prince of Peace. And he did come the first time to bring peace. But only to his chosen people. Only to those whom the Father had set, aside, set apart from before the foundation of the world to belong to him. When Jesus was born, the angels proclaimed this. This is going to sound familiar, but listen carefully to the wording. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Yes, he came to bring peace, but peace to the redeemed. He said to his disciples in John chapter 14 and chapter 16, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He is going to give his people peace with God, but he did not even begin to promise peace with the world. Matter of fact, he tells them, I will bring division between you and the world. He explains this in John chapter 3. Right after explaining what the gospel message is, he says in verses 18 and 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. As we go forth with this message of light and truth, the world is going to rebel against it. They're going to hate it because their works are evil and they love the darkness. In John chapter 16, verse 19, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that's why the cross is so divisive. It is the dividing point in history and in the human race. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness in the eyes of the world. 
you don't believe me, go down to Main Street, right in the center of State College, and just start asking the questions. What do you think of sin? What do you think of God's judgment? What do you think of hell? What do you think of the wrath of God? What do you think of salvation only in Jesus Christ? And you will find out that the world not only thinks it's a foolish message, but the vast majority of them hate the ideas that are central to it. All humanity, from God's perspective, is divided between those who have peace with God through the atoning work of Christ on the cross and those who remain and continue under the wrath of God for their sins. That's just biblical reality. And Christ does bring peace to the world, and it's a peace that cuts across all worldly identities and all worldly tribes. It cuts across gender, it cuts across race, it cuts across class, it cuts across families, it cuts across nationalities. That's what he means. Families will be divided over the cross of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, but there, there is no male or female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no distinction among those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. But what will divide us from the world around us is the hostility that the world has towards that message and towards our Savior. And that cuts across all genders, races, tribes, families, and nationalities. And that brings us to the last message that Jesus teaches in this difficult passage, where he says that this gospel message is of utmost urgency. In verses 57 through 59, Jesus presents a situation where someone has committed a serious crime involving some great financial numbers, some, some great theft, some great fraud has taken place. And this person is profoundly and clearly guilty. And he's on his way to court. He's on his way to stand before the judge for his crimes. And he's facing the certainty of a lifetime imprisonment. That's why at the end he says, you'll stay there until the last penny is paid. Especially back in Jesus' day, if you committed a great crime, you owed this tremendous amount, and you were cast into prison, you couldn't repay it. You were there for life. And so what would your common sense advice be to someone in that situation? Jesus spells it out. He says, you'd go to your accuser, and you'd try to settle with him. Anything, whatever it took to settle with the, your accuser before you had to stand before the judge to pay for your crimes. The meaning of that short story is very, very clear. The law is our accuser. We are all desperately guilty before the law of God. And if you know someone who is headed to face the judge, and everyone will face the judge on that day, if you know someone who is on their way to face the judge, but remain under the wrath of God, profoundly guilty, and destined to pay for their crimes, their sins of thought, word, and deed, you better appeal to them urgently to settle with their accuser before they face the judge. To find the peace with God that amazingly is free to anyone who will believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ.
It's not a great Mother's Day message, is it? <laughs> Especially when you think about the fact that this message does cut through families. This gospel message does separate mothers from daughters, mothers from sons. It separates us from friends and loved ones and coworkers. I've had a lot of discussion lately with other pastors on staff and members of the congregation wrestling with what does it mean to take this message to this culture? We live in, especially those of us who live and shop and work and operate in this university community, this is a hard calling. On the mission field, they talk about contextualization. That if you're going to be raised in an American church, an American family, an American culture, and God calls you to go to Central Africa or India or China to take the gospel there, you better learn about how to contextualize the gospel, about how to remove from the gospel message what is American tradition and American perspective and American values and take that same gospel, the core of the gospel, the biblical gospel, and take it and take it to a, a different, very different culture and communicate that truth to that culture in a way that they can hear it and not be blinded by all the cultural baggage. And the danger of contextualization, and missionaries deal with this all the time, inner city ministries deal with this all the time, the danger is that in the effort to try to take this gospel message with these wonderful but hard truths, the danger is that in being sensitive to the context in which you're proclaiming this hard message in this foreign culture, the problem is sometimes you're tempted to change the message, to compromise the truth, to make it more palatable to those that you're trying to reach. And what has happened over and over again, and it's happening again in our own culture here, is that you slowly become blind to the fact that you have basically just drain the life out of the gospel and you've turned it into something that the world wants to hear. That's the danger. And so we have to be careful that we have, as we have that noble goal of communicating this message to a culture that most of the culture does not want to hear it. Most of the culture thinks it's foolishness. Most of the culture are going to get angry if you try to talk about the wrath of God and eternal hell and judgment and salvation in Christ alone. But let me warn you on the other side as well. The other side is that we become fearful of living in that tension. And we step back inside our church buildings and stay inside our homes and we only talk to Christians, and we only read Christian literature, and we only listen to Christian music, and we basically insulate ourselves from the world, and when anything about the world comes up, we sit inside our bubbles, or sit inside our, inside our church buildings, or sit inside our social media accounts, and we throw stones at the world because they're so bad out there. That will not fulfill our mission either. We cannot compromise the truth, but we also cannot put the truth on a shelf, and then just attack the world for the way they think, the way they live, the way they talk. 
Jesus Christ has called us to a very difficult mission. One of the most difficult missions that I think his people have ever had to deal with is to take this message without any modification, without any watering it down, without any changes whatsoever, take it to the world and communicate it to them in love. And that's what it comes down to. That's why Jesus made such an important point about loving our enemies. We must love our enemies. Don't throw stones at them. Don't call them names on social media. Love your enemies. Form a relationship with them. Care about them. Show them that you care about them. And if you really care about them, how in the world can you keep from them that they are under the wrath of God and they are going to stand before him in judgment one day and if they do not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in hell. If you really love your enemies, you're going to somehow get that message to them. Christians are the true progressives in this society because we are the ones who are on the right side of history because we know the gospel and we know where history is going. We know the future that's to come and we're here to tell the world and it's going to hurt sometimes to tell the world. It's, you're going to feel like a fool sometimes telling that to the world. You're going to get hurt by, you're going to be insulted, you're going to be financially disadvantaged, you're going to lose friendships. But let me give you this encouragement. According to scripture, the Holy Spirit is out there changing hearts even as we speak. There are people in State College, there are people on the campus who the, whose hearts are being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they need and they want to hear the truth that you've been given. You just need to go find them. That's why we're here. Every moment in history is happening exactly according to the perfect will of our sovereign God. His covenant of grace, his plan of redemption is continuing to be fulfilled. And the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the dividing point of all history. And that event determines who is on the right side and who is on the wrong side. We're on the right side not because we're spiritually discerning, not because we're wise, not because we're intelligent, not because we're privileged, not because we're good looking. We are on the right side because of the grace of God. He opened our eyes. He changed our hearts. And he brought us into his kingdom by his grace alone. And so when we go out with this message, we don't go out with pride. We go out with love that others might find the grace that we have found in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. We would rather have pleasant sermons honoring our mothers on days like this and I do pray that our mothers would get the honor they deserve from their families and friends and congregation members. But Lord, your word has led us to consider that judgment day is coming. And so Lord, we pray that with that realization, our hearts would be quickened to be more obedient to the mission you've given us. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we've been distracted and caught up in the ways of this world and 
And Lord, if there is in any way in which we've compromised your message or softened your message or blunted your message, Lord, forgive us for that and help us to repent. But Lord, I pray that this life-changing gospel will go out to State College, to Penn State, to Center County, to Pennsylvania and the world, and that we will be a part of that great mission. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.